I'm Courtney. I'm Joe. And, and this, this is Courtney, Courtney and Joe, Joe Spoil, Spoil Everything. everything. Courtney Brown, are you ready to shake some dust up for <laughs> Carnival Episode 1? I am. I love it. I love it. I love creepy stuff. What did you think going into this? Like, what is it going to be? What is this show going to be to you? Well, first and foremost, I knew that it took place during the Dust Bowl, so I knew it was kind of going to be that gritty, dirty kind of look to the whole thing, which I was into. And I knew it was going to have obvious elements of this carnival freak show type thing. And I thought really that was what it was going to concentrate on, like these kind of like different characters and, and seeing their humanity underneath. But it I took me in a surprising direction with these like biblical and good versus evil themes. So I found that really interesting. What'd you think? So I was like, this is probably going to be a show about a traveling circus with a lot of messed up looking people, which I'm not looking forward to. <laughs> Uh, and there'll be someone who's like quote unquote normal that will be like a stand in for the audience or like will follow. And I figured it would be like a dark version of the movie Big Fish, which I loved. I thought that was such a cool movie back in the day. Oh, yeah, yeah. So this came out in 2003, and I thought it came out in the late 90s because I felt like it was on for so long. Me too. I remember all of those commercials when they would be like, and next on Carnival. Like they would have that guy's voice. It seems like it went on forever. And yeah, the two seasons surprised me when i fired it up and i was like oh like are they missing a couple like seasons here no it was just those two i was supposed to have six but it got reduced to two i think because it was competing with the sopranos and had a bill of like four million dollars per episode oh, probably did yeah because i'm sure that this had to all be built on a sound stage because where are you going to go and make it look like the dust bowl so yeah i could see that plus there's a huge ensemble cast for this i mean that's gonna cost some bucks yeah, a lot of these people have some credits to their name. Yeah. Uh, you got to do a little digging, but you can find them. But, you know, let, let's start off with our live view. And the beginning, I already won out because that guy creeped me out in the beginning. Yeah. I loved that because instantly it brought me back to David Lynch's Twin Peaks because um, the guy who's it's the character of Samson, he's played by Michael J. Anderson, who I don't know if you've ever seen Twin Peaks, but he's the man from another place. So that's kind of like his immediate recognition in this. So right away it opens up on the like creepy prologue he's doing. And I was here for it. I've only seen the new Twin Peaks and I lost interest after one season. I was like, I don't get it. I just don't get it. I haven't like, watched the new anyway. one. I'm really, I'm more into the old one. I just like that piece of it. It, it started off, uh, when that show started, it was really intriguing. So I, I actually met David Lynch's daughter before at a, um, at a horror con and she just the way she speaks about her father and the way his mind works like she said that he brought her to the shining when she was like a little girl and he just they're like eating popcorn and looks over and he just goes this is fucking awesome like he's just kind of like an out there dude you know so this kind of gave me that same vibe and I, I was here for it was she a guest or was she just like chilling no, she was um she was like a guest, a panelist, and I went oh, up to her afterwards because she did a Q and A, and I went up to her and I said, "God, I I just have to tell you, I love your whole like women empowerment thing because she's a filmmaker herself, and she grabbed me, gave me a hug, and she's like, here's my email address, you email me anytime.' So I'll send her like a note once in a while when I'll see she's in the credit of something because she, she was just so intriguing. That's pretty cool. Yeah, should email her that this came out. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so you mentioned the Dust Bowl is kind of like our backdrop for this. Why don't you go ahead and 
give our listeners a little background to what the Dust Bowl is? Yeah, I mean, at its high level, this is taking place in the in the early 1930s. So we're in the middle of the Depression here. And then the Dust Bowl hits um, kind of these Midwestern areas. And it's, the farms have drought. The crops are all drying up. The wind's carrying everything away. So it kind of makes already hard times even more impoverished. And that's kind of the world that we're immediately dropped into in this. This is a very desolate area. There's not much going on with him. He's filthy when we drop into there. So we're already like, okay, this is kind of a depressing life he's living. So where's it going to go from here? Yeah. So in the, in the beginning, we meet Ben Hawkins, who is played by Nick Stahl. Yes. Um, you might know him from Terminator as John Connor. He was in Sin City. Uh, Terminator. Behavior, my favorite. What? Disturbing behavior. All right. I don't know what that is. You keep oh trying to push, push this on me. I, do. I don't want to <laughs> impart it. All right. So it's a great movie. Katie at, Holmes in nineties. Look at the credits, and he was big from two thousand three, two thousand five, which is when those two movies came out with the show. And then he kind of just dropped off the face of the planet. And I'm like, oh. I know this guy. Like I've seen him. He reminds me. I, I looked it up. He looks like Max Thoreau, and it has bothered me almost every day. He, If you don't know uh, Max Thoreau, he was in Bates Motel, Point Break, the new one, um, Texas Rising. Yeah, I mean, they look similar in, in, the, in the age that he plays in this. And it's been bothering yeah. me, but I finally figured it out. Yeah. So, <clears throat> I mean, they, um, you know, when the credits rolled for this, uh, they have a pretty big ensemble cast. And I don't know how much, you're not as much into the horror realm like I am, but um, they have Adrian Barbeau who is the snake charmer in this. And she doesn't get a lot of play in this episode, but she's very much in the horror realm. Um, she's really well known in like the horror con circuit. And she was in like the fog and creep show and swamp thing. And she was even married to John Carpenter for a time, the guy that made Halloween. Ooh. So she's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. if you are in that realm, you know her. So I think that also brought like an element to this that I'm like, Ooh, I'm, I'm excited about this. Yeah, that that would be what you're looking forward to. You're like, I want all these people who play monsters and all these yes. movies. <laughs> Bring in all the creeps, put them in one show, and I'll be engaged for seven seasons. So I just want to back up to Nick Stahl really quick. But have you seen a recent picture of him? Uh, I mean, like one, and he's looking rough. Yeah, I'm sorry. Um, you shouldn't have done that. Uh, a little background of what happened to him on... May 2012, Stahl was declared missing by his wife. It was later reported that Stahl had checked into rehab. That's where he was. Oh On December 27, Stahl was arrested at Delt Film Store under suspicion of committing a lewd act. Oh, God. And then no charges were filed. However, in June 2013, Stahl was arrested in Hollywood for possession of meth. So oh, my gosh. Oh, you could that's where he could be King. <laughs> he could be Joe Exotic's meth husband. But in good news, in 2017, he in had moved to Texas to um, concentrate on his family and sobriety. He returned to acting um, in 2018 with The Haunting of Nicole Brown Simpson. Oh, geez. Like, what a way to kick it off again. But he has a bunch of stuff that's coming up, apparently. Um, it would be nice his... if he got, you know, I think we're in this time now where everybody's getting, like, their second chance. So it would be nice if we kind of could see him in more things now that he's a little bit older because he's probably about 40 i would guess yeah yeah i'd say yeah he was he was actually pretty good he was actually good in this too i enjoyed yeah, it he was he really was and he um i'm sure he got this part because he had that like lovable baby face and as you say he was in a few other recognizable even though you don't know what disturbing behavior is it was popular 
when it came out. And then, of Whatever. course, Terminator. So I, I'm sure that's kind of what also got him this part. Yeah, so it opens up on him at his house looking over what we find out is his mother dying. And he goes to touch her and she like freaks the F out. Yeah, and... she like shudders. It was so off-putting. And then she eventually dies. Well, it, well, first, he wakes up from a dream that I can only describe as a normal Tuesday night dream for me. <laughs> um, there's like World War One flashbacks, which is weird because his age doesn't line up with him being in World War One. This takes place in 1930s. Yeah. You know, the war ended in 1918. His character would have to be at least... 36 right it would have to be like the gentleman who we who we find out that that comes out of the uh van it would have to be you know he has a leg injury he would have to be somewhat in that age range well i'm almost wondering are you i mean you're better definitely with the history type things are we sure it's not some kind of premonition and that's like world war ii or something no, there's World War One. There's like trenches and stuff. World War Two okay. wasn't really fought in the trenches, okay. and just stylistically with the bob wire and stuff. I don't know if you remember this, but remember when I did the World War One documentary? Yeah, yeah. That was a nightmare. I literally had to sleep <laughs> in trenches. I was so tired from just eighteen hour days running a hundred person crew in the middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania. Oh, literally <laughs> like being in World War One. Yeah, well, I'll get to some stories about that eventually um wild it was wild it was in middle of february it was ice cold out because we needed like dark and all the trees stripped away to look like it'd been bombed oh my god i do remember that shoot that was a long labor of love Mm -hmm. i got i got pneumonia after that shoot i was just so tired i didn't sleep i was outside all day my body like physically shut down after that shoot that's why you're still having like reoccurring nightmares from it no, like we had the same nightmare that he woke up from. <laughs> My whole thing in that is that that little, what I'll call the dream sequence, didn't fit in this world. And that's why even like the coloring of it, and it almost looked more modern. That's why I was like, is this a flashback? Is this a fever dream? Is this supposed to be some kind of prediction about what's going to happen? So that part was intriguing. And then, of course, we see it three more times in this. And you're still not putting anything together each time it comes on. No, not at all. You know what's interesting about this, too, is they almost have done, if you ever watch like any of the trailers or the promos for the show, they've almost put those together in the same way that they did that like dream sequence. I, I read somewhere someone called the promos uh, like mini Zapruder films. Like they're not actually telling you what's going on. You kind of have to break them down and analyze them to figure out what's going to happen. Like who are the important characters? You're like free frame like, everything. Yeah. Yeah. It's supposed to be like, uh, what's it? The subliminal messaging type shit. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, so he, his mother ends up dying, um, as we see, and he uses the smallest shovel on the planet <laughs> to bury his mother. It's not He's not going to be able to dig that. Like, he's just not by no. God, no. And then I love, like, when the guy rolls up with the, um, with the bulldozer, and he's just like, well, I'll just run him over if he's not getting out of the way. Like, the 30s were ruthless. <laughs> yeah, well, the bulldozer driver... Uh, it's actually Jack McGee. He was in Rescue Me, The Fighter, Gangster Squad, Moneyball, Basic Instinct. He's been in a ton of stuff. Oh, he has big character actor. Credit. Yeah. I was like, where is the credit? I had to like really look on the IMDb page. I was like, I know that's him. So like, yeah. where is he? So I had to go back and look and be like, yeah, I knew that was him. But 
he's been the same age forever too. He's like one of those people that just don't age. Yeah, yeah. Like his, um, I feel that way about like a few different people in here. Like when I look at Clancy Brown, who we'll get to as the priest, I'm like, same face, same face for oh, thirty yeah. years. Mm-hmm. But you know what I, you know what I liked about this, just like as an overarching thing, it was almost like, as I said, Twin Peaks, but like Twin Peaks meets Lost meets American Horror Story, like, before American Horror Story was out. Like, it was a a good mixture because there's almost this, like, dialogue in these scenes that set up where you're just a surface watcher. Like, you're like, okay, I just want to go into, like, an old-timey show and be, like, in the carnival world. And there's those elements for those people. But then as you're watching this, they keep being digging deeper and deeper into this mystery and if you're like a really intense watcher and you want to figure something out like they also have those elements for you too yeah there's this a mystery uh and it all starts when these people from the carnival roll up and they see this kind of altercation happening and they decide they're going to help so um you know they hop out and jonesy who is a familiar face he's tim decay's from white yeah. collar i was like oh boy he's really youthful in this i'm he big is. in it yeah, and he like, embodies that character really well. From like the first time we meet him, he's he's probably like a strong arm for the carnies, but really you can tell he's got a good heart because he hops right out of that vehicle. Like he stands up for this kid he doesn't know. I mean, even even later in the Ferris wheel scene, you can kind of tell he's just like a good guy. So I enjoyed him being in this. Yeah, literally hops because he has that injury, and I'm yeah. I'm anxious to see like why he had that injury. You know, that's something I have to look into. You know, maybe he was in World War One. You know, I almost thought it was the war thing, but if you rewatch the opening sequence of this, there's a lot of baseball in this. There's Babe Ruth. Um, even when the wind like blows off and reveals the Carnival like logo, it's almost like the diamond from baseball. So I wonder if he's more like a baseball figure of that time, and it's an injury from that because his spirit is so good. I mean, he doesn't really fit into this carny world. You can kind of tell he's not a, a roughneck, you know, working outside. So. I almost wonder if that's got something to do with it, too. Yeah, I mean, and he's pretty clean-cut, you know, yeah. good-looking guy, so he doesn't really fit the mantra. But then again, he has the leg, so he has a um, a disability because it seems like the carnival is, is filled with, you know, people that are supposed to have abilities, but they're actually disabilities. Right. And whether that plays. So, well, they, they hop out, and they actually help... Um, bury his his mother which is um you know a really touching scene and they they sing yeah that was sweet when they that really says something about these people that we're going to be following because i think they're supposed to be looked at as like the quote-unquote freaks as they roll into these different towns but you knew right away from when they threw that impromptu funeral like here's the people with the humanity here's the people with like the spirit and the soul and they're going to be the good guys and all this like that scene is very telling without saying much yeah, but then it, the house gets bulldozed in like two seconds. And then they're like, oh, all right, let's roll. We barely, barely finished that hymn and he's just like, knock it down. Yeah, so, I mean, obviously there's a lot going on and there's just like everything happening. And then Ben just faints. Yeah, um, it, and then they see the cops coming. And if they notice something, um, which is where the mystery begins, what we're talking about, is there's uh, a chain on his leg. Yeah, what? was that like a prisoner type thing? Like what is the chain? What's the significance of the chain? I wasn't really sure for that like time period. So it said that he was working on a chain gang and usually that would be someone 
you know, maybe someone that's serving a prison sentence that's forced to do manual labor, like building the railroads as Manifest Destiny was coming. Okay. Uh, and continuing to grow um, and still really paving those pathways to the West from the East um, that they seem to be heading. And maybe he just got out of there and escaped. So they see the cops come and they throw him in the van. Right. Like, but okay. that's when that's when we cut to <laughs> the weirdest priest in the world. Um, <laughs> Clan- if you don't know Clancy Brown, he is the type of... <laughs> I'm not picking on the actor, the real guy, but the characters he plays, like they always are seemingly nice men, but they're always like pieces of shit underneath. Like Shawshank, Pet Cemetery 2, the dude... <laughs> He's always a dick. It's so Starship crazy. Troopers, which is an absolute favorite of mine. <laughs> uh, you want to know what he's most famous for? So he's a huge voice actor. Guess what voice he does that you have heard a billion times, and he probably makes a boatload of money on. What is Mr. Krabs from SpongeBob? Oh my god! Wait, yeah, I could see that. I could see that. Oh, he's getting good residuals from that show. Oh yeah, and apparently. The producers say that um, brother Justin Crow, who's his character, is actually based off a real person oh. um, who was sympathetic to the Nazi cause. And oh. um, yeah, he was a real priest and a real shithead. Um, so they actually based that character off of him. <laughs> it doesn't surprise me because I think that's going to be telling. You could, the way he was preaching was very uh, end of times. And of course, you know, at that point in time, they probably did think that just because of the depression and the dust bowl and everything going on. But he was very gloom and doom. He wasn't a very good, like, raise you up type preacher. I mean, it wasn't coronavirus, but it was close. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So the, the, they show this dirty old woman. She steals money and she gets caught in the back by uh, one of the sisters. But when she barfed out those coins i was like what's going on and then it happened two more times i was like like so taken aback by that it was i mean freaky because i love it but like it was a little off-putting well at first i thought he was doing that to her from for stealing and then i realized he was trying to help her and then i was even more confused once all the coins were gone it made no damn sense yeah i didn't know at first i didn't know if it was something that she was imagining, but then when he hugged her and he kind of looked around, I'm like, Oh, this is in his mind because this must be kind of a foreshadowing for how his mind operates. Like you're going to pay the toll when you do something wrong type thing. So I don't think that actually happened. I think it was something that happened in his mind. Yeah, no, that's super weird. I have no idea. Um, Cause something weird happens to him later, but we'll get to that. Um, right after that scene, they pick up, they're back on the road. Ben is passed out. Uh, and Lilla, the bearded lady, who you love, who I find absolutely <laughs> disgusting. I love her because I love how like flirtatious she is. And she's kind of like scantily clad. And then, but then she's just stroking this like really tailored beard. And it's so Ugh. crazy. <laughs> but I so, love this shit. I mean, this is my realm. So all the people on in this carnival, I get a lot of questions about this kid. You know, they, they have a lot of mouths to feed. They don't know if they can take on another person. Yeah. So the bearded lady and um, Professor Lauds, uh, he gets up and he's a mentalist, apparently. And yeah. he can figure out what he's dreaming about. So he touches his head and he sees like that crazy dream. 
which then like haunts him later, which I thought was really interesting because you would think it would be one of those moments where it's just like this, oh, this is what I saw and this is crazy. But then when it's running through his own mind later, I was like, this is more than just a dream. This is almost some kind of, um, some kind of glimpse into something that's going to happen or something that's going to have meaning. Yeah, those cuts are so quick. I didn't stop to break them down, but I think I should have. Yeah. But I think they were trying to do that to see, maybe they could see his dreams to see where he's coming from, to see what crime he committed in order to be in that chain gang, to see, like, what is this kid that's, like, random? Is he good? Is he bad? Is he going to, you know, does he, can he be one of us um, right. type of deal? Because he just seems, in, in this part so far, he just seems like kind of like a typical young man. They don't really know much about him. Um, but I love, like, after the blind guy had like experienced that he's just like sitting back and drinking absinthe after because he's just so <laughs> disgruntled by the dream sequence. Yeah. And I mean, his true test of character comes in the play and we start to see that when they get to the town that they're going to, Ben decides to go off into town. He doesn't want to be part of the carnival anymore. And he sees this woman and she's holding a dead baby. Um, yeah. You know, it's pretty rough for him. So you know he, he goes over and he he takes the baby and, and gives it to what i assume is the father um but you start to see that he's human and he and i think the woman is actually supposed to portray that very famous photo of the woman during the great depression they kind of set up the oh the yeah. Shot anyway. yeah that's a good point and i don't think that these two even though it was kind of a, a throwaway scene i don't think this is a throwaway scene after all because the two actors in this are popular themselves and i mean even the one um the one that's supposed to be the father he is in oz which was a huge show for hbo so i have to imagine this is going to come back into play at some point and mm -hmm. looking back on this i mean spoiler alert for the abilities we find out he has in the end but did he bring the baby back to life or no, maybe not at that point because he hasn't really accepted no. it yet. Yeah. And he had the blanket around it still. So he didn't actually physically touch the baby. Okay. Okay. Well, his character is once again tested. He starts walking. He hears um, Sophie, uh, who's a tarot card reader of the, the group, apparently. Yeah. Clea Duvall. I love her. Oh my God. She's very Sarah, like super Sarah plain and tall in this. But I loved her in the faculty with the short haircut and like being Bad punk. And stuff. Yeah, I was like smitten kitten. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I really, I, I enjoy her. She's in Ghost of Mars. Oh yeah, with Jason Statham, like one of his first movies too. Yeah. That was such a cool. That was like one of my intros into horror movies. I'm not gonna lie, I'm I'm not a horror movie fan. I'm very selective on the horror movies that I watch. Yeah, but I. My buddy made me watch that when I was younger and I was like hooked. I was like, this is a cool movie. It just had so much like weirdness to it. Yeah. Um, but she's an Argo, Handmaid's Tale, American Horror Story, Buffy, on and on and on and on. Yeah, and on. she she used to be in a ton, ton of stuff. And I really enjoy her because she's kind of versatile. There was a few things about her within this that kind of threw me off. Like I wasn't sure if her like her hairstyle matched those times. I thought maybe she could have used a little more work to look in the 1930s, but you know, I'm not positive, but it almost seemed like all the other ladies really represented those times. And she could have maybe used just like a little more. Yeah. I'm not really sure. I'm not, I didn't really ever do anything in that era for production or anything. So I didn't really have a background in it, but yeah, there's some like 
stuff, you never know if it's like hit or miss. I mean, obviously the lizard guy isn't to form. Oh, <laughs> <With the dreads>. <laughs> <laughs> when they showed that tail and then he turned around with all that scaly skin. Of course, you didn't watch that season of American Horror Story Freak Show, did you? No, that's the one I skipped. Thank okay, you. Yes, yeah, so, I knew it. So a lot of these characters are later in that in the same way. Like there's there's a lizard guy that's really tattooed. Um, there's the bearded lady. So you get a lot of these same characters in that. Of course, the thing with American Horror Story was it was almost more like glitzed and glammed up, like really bright. Whereas I loved like the artsy dirtiness of this because it's in the Dust Bowl. So I, I appreciated this was a little more authentic to me. Back to Sophie. She gets saved. She goes back. Wait, can um, we talk about that scene for a moment? When they, yeah, you love that scene. They straight, yeah, I love it. I hate it. They straight up pull her out of that car and they're gonna rape her. She goes when she gets back. She goes, some guys in town got fresh. Got fresh. They were straight up getting ready to rape this girl. Like it was crazy. The younger of those two guys, he was in uh, Batman. The original. With Christian Bale. Oh, no, okay. With Christian Bale. Okay. Fun fact. But when she gets back and Jonesy comes in to talk to her and she's kind of like breaking down what happened and he basically says, you asked for it. She, I mean, she slaps him and she's like, I didn't ask for it. I asked for a tank of gas. That's a pretty empowered woman for a time like that. So I think that's going to say a lot about her character. I want to know what her mom said because she was like, shut up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm so intrigued by the catatonic mother. I guess I didn't understand that gypsies have telekine- um have telekinesis. So I was like, I oh, I, she can read the mom's mind. I, don't think so. I have no idea. I don't think so. But it kind of shows that he has the ability to be a hero. Right. It kind of sets him up on this path because you weren't really sure if he was like a prisoner type thing before. Obviously, he was, you know, poverty stricken. But um, yeah, he really, this kind of starts the hero's journey. And if I don't know, do you, are you familiar with what the hero's journey is? um enlighten the audience okay so the hero's journey is it's basically what all tales tv shows movies are structured around and if you really think about the 12 steps of it you can kind of match it up to any type of entertainment you've seen so um you think about it like the wizard of oz right so in the hero's journey you start out in the ordinary world and then you kind of get this call to action it's called to adventure um, and it goes through these 12 steps until eventually you capture whatever, like, the thing is, whether it's a lesson or whether it's, like, a physical um, trait that you bring back. And they call it the return with the elixir. So it's kind of like you're coming back with the lesson learned. But what's great about this is this is a perfect example in the show of the hero's journey because he starts off in what we call the ordinary world. It's the Dust Bowl. He's with his mother. Um now he gets his call to action. The carnies pick him up. And he's got that scene um, with Samson where it's the refusal, right? Where he's just like, screw this. I'm going home. And the, and Samson's like, listen, I'm offering you an opportunity to be in entertainment. Like, what are you going to do? Walk back to Oklahoma? Like, <laughs> there's nothing there for you. And that kind of sets this all in motion. So, of course, because I'm viewing him as the hero, I think he's the one in the end that's going to be the good and bring out the good. Yeah. So Samson tries to get him to stay. And he decides that night he's going to walk around the carnival and he gets to see the good in the carnival and the good in these people. Um, 
Yeah. You have the ticket scene with the girl. He's like, your money's not good here. Gives her two more tickets for her and her brother so he could ride the Ferris wheel. Yeah. Um, it was just adorable. And, you, I mean... The conjoined twins put on a very classy act with that singing. Like, I wasn't sure what their thing was going to be. I thought maybe they'll be like a little weird. But then they're just sitting there singing, well, I think it was like a, maybe like a French song. And I was like, oh, this is a very classy act for the conjoined, conjoined twins. Well, they go from classy to a little assy uh, <laughs> when we meet Libby, who is Carla Gallo, who actually um, dates uh, Nick Stahl in real life, you know, during this, oh. during this time period. Um, Carla Gallo, she's a big Judd Apatow girl. She's in a lot of Judd Apatow films. Okay. She was the one that was um, exposed on the stage. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so she's in Neighbors 2, Get Him to the Greek, and I'm sitting there, and I'm like, where is she from? Where is she from? I've seen her before. I know her. Her face is embedded in my brain. She was the one who was grinding on Jonah Hill's leg at the party, and then period on had put period blood on his leg oh, by accident. <laughs> yeah and i was just like oh my god but uh, another fun fact about carla gallo i'm gonna throw in here real quick her best friend from childhood is sarah paulson from american horror story so that's kind of cool oh that is cool so from all the good that he sees in the carnival he's kind of sitting there he's taking it all in he's taking in the most anticlimactic strip show ever yeah (laughs) wow they're playing like this really like grinding music (laughs) nothing (laughs) happening Slow motion shimmying, basically. Oh, yeah. Ugh. Um, and then he sees bad. Apparently, one of the girls is a hooker. Yeah. I really liked kind of what Samson said to him at that point, which was basically like, well, how's she, what's she doing any worse than what everybody else is doing for a paycheck around here? So I think it kind of says something about those times. Yeah. We go from like one hooker scene to another hooker scene. We oh. see the priest he's approached he like turns down this woman and it's raining blood all of a sudden the blood raining down is because he's having some impure thoughts right like he's wandering through the town he comes across this place that's very much like obviously some kind of whorehouse cocktails and dancing are <laughs> in the window so that's kind of giving a glimpse into a little bit more of who he is now we came off the coin scene with him now this is showing like oh maybe the priest isn't as holy as he would like to think he is yeah you want to know a fun fact um there's a strip club in my town and there's a guy who stands outside with a cross at like 2 30 in the afternoon and i'm like man come back later like there ain't nobody in there <laughs> but yeah i think that scene is kind of really supposed to set up like it's what makes you start questioning who he is what his moral compass is because the priest is supposed to get up and lead all these people, whereas Ben is kind of in the shadows. He's not saying a whole lot in this episode. He does not have a lot of dialogue. So now you're kind of setting up these two people who you're not sure what the relationship is going to be, but you know at some point it's going to be coming together because they're traveling west. I mean, they're going with the carnies. Yeah, and I mean, we find out more of the, the priest backstory until the next scene. So the next morning when Ben wakes up, he starts packing up the carnival and doing some work, but he lets Sophie read his cards. Yeah. Yeah. And all of a sudden he has flashbacks of his mother, like yelling at him because he dug up a cat that was dead for three days and suddenly it was back to life. Yeah. And she says, you know, she says this thing, you have the mark of the beast, but I don't think that that ability, I guess what we'll call it is a bad thing. 
I think that it's going to be one of those things where his mother was probably this God-fearing woman and she saw it as, oh my God, he's an abomination, which also explains in the beginning why she like had a freak out when he came over to like try to comfort her. She's like, don't touch me. She doesn't want his, what she thinks is maybe like dark magic. Yeah. And ultimately he doesn't, he kind of wraps her in the towel and then, you know, goes to bury her. He is um, a quote unquote reverse magician. So his powers to make things appear or disappear, I think, um, are going to play. And and it plays ultimately in the last scene of the show um, where he goes up to that little girl that's in the wagon. Before that, though, I have a question. When she touches his hand and kind of telling him about this great talent that he has, he gets the vision of the priest. So that's obviously setting something up that's to come. All right. So... I think it, it's ultimately uh, when she uh, touches his hand, he gets and then in, they have this flashback. He sees the priest. Now, I don't know if he's ever seen that priest before, but ultimately the priest has this ability to appeal to God for answers and get positive answers and positive results, as you see with the woman with the coins. What's interesting in this, the next scene is the little girl asks why he's crying and he looks up uh, and looks up to the, to the crippled girl and he starts to think about his ability and power and he wants to do good. So he touches her legs and gives her the ability to walk again. However, when he does so, if you look, the crops in the back start to die. Yeah. Being marked by the devil, I think there is some sort of, with everything he does that's good, there's going to be a number of things that follow that are bad. And I have a feeling that you have this appeal to good and a good person who's followed by the devil are somehow going to meet I'm guessing at the end of season two, I hope. I mean, it's supposed to be six seasons. I don't know if they're actually going to do it. Yeah, I'm hoping because, well, if you go back to Samson's prologue way at the beginning of when this um, episode started, he is, um, he's talking about how since the beginning of time, basically there's been these creatures of light and creatures of dark. And it sort of sets up, sets up this big idea that there's going to be a battle coming to a head at some point. Now, I think that you're supposed to think that Ben is the creature of dark because there's always kind of like this give and take when he does something quote unquote good. And then the priest, of course, in his realm is supposed to be the good one. But I think eventually those wires are going to get crossed because like everything we've seen in the show, there's a little kind of mystery element to this. And I don't think it's going to be that straightforward. I think it's definitely at some point they switch roles and you see why... Ben is ultimately like the right just one and the priest is really like evil. Yeah, so they have this persona that's upfront just by their looks. Being a priest, you're supposed to be morally correct. You're supposed to help others. You know, but secretly, you know, based off that scene with the raining blood and stuff, maybe he's like secretly bad. And then you have Ben on the other hand who looks he he's a carny now and they has a negative connotation that comes along with yeah. it. You know, you go to a town of settled people and, and like you're just like a gypsy pretty much. You even see like they're supposed to be like the outcasts. But as soon as that scene um, with Sophie when she's in town and those guys, like I say, want to rape her, they ultimately look like the bad ones. Like you already you already know that the carnies are inherently good because they got out. They put on that impromptu funeral for Ben's mother. 
they brought him along when they didn't need to. They offered him a job. But then you get into town with these people who are supposed to be the normal ones, and they're showing all these really deceitful, evil acts. Well, they're rich in character, not so much, you know, with money exactly. as the priest is. Exactly. You know, with all those people putting the coins in. So, you know, maybe that's what it comes to. And I mean, as you see that little girl running towards her house, you see more stuff dying around her, right. which leads you to like wonder like how much is going to die in order for her to be able to walk again. I almost I almost think that the opening of this show is, is the most important because I think it's giving you a blueprint for what's to come. But because it's so early at the beginning, you don't really have that long to reflect on it. It's only now because we go back and watch it a couple of times that we're like, Oh, okay. Like he's kind of telling us what we're going to see seemingly in the next two seasons. It's only two seasons, not a huge commitment. I mean, yeah. I would green light the show. It seems really cool. It does have a big bill attached to it, but I mean, your HBO, I mean, this is the height of HBO too. I mean, they got yeah. everything rolling for them. They're firing on all cylinders. I mean, this is this is something that at the time was kind of probably a really big standout for HBO. It's a period piece. It's got these intriguing elements to it. It's got biblical undertones, unbeknownst to most people. It even has like the hot quote unquote actors at the time. And it's got like whimsy, like even when they're making fun of him when he falls in the mud, like there's a little bit of something um, in here that HBO didn't have in their other shows, especially at that time. Yeah, it's for everyone as long as you're weird. <laughs> Which is why I love it. Yeah. But, I mean, that pretty much sums up Carnival Episode 1. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to follow Spoil Everything Pod on Instagram. Be sure to reach out to us. Drop us a line. I'd love to hear from you. And uh, got a special guest. Yes. We have someone joining us who is who's never worked in the television business but was a huge super fan of the show. She's a little off like me, so she loves all the weirdness of the show. So I can't wait on um, to watch the series finale and kind of deep dive into it with her. Well, all right. I guess we'll both find out, or all of us will find out, when we drop episode two. So thanks, guys. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, yep. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.